Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, you guys have no excuse. You've been up for longer than the first hour. Good morning, everybody. All right, that, that sounds better. That sounds better. I'm excited because this morning we are going to be looking at two of Jesus' I am statements. One's very explosive and the other one's just very comforting. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. My name is Jim Breckbuehler. I'm the discipleship minister here at Discover, and I welcome you. If you want to open your Bibles to the 10th chapter of John, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 21 today. So to kind of set this up today, I want to go back through some some facts about the Bible because they will lay a foundation that we are going to rest on today. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a 1,500-year span by 40 different authors from all different walks of life. But it's not just a collection of random stories or random books. It is a collection based upon the fact that everyone was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the cool thing about the Bible is it starts with creation, and then it talks about the fall of man. And then it tells the whole story of the Bible, which is Jesus coming to save the world. And 500 to 700 years out, the prophets became, started laying down facts about the Messiah that would come, about Jesus. And these prophecies help build our faith. And I just picked out five of them. Isaiah, prophesying about 700 years before Jesus was born, said that he would be born of a virgin. Micah, again, 700 plus years out, said he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Most of us can't tell you where our grandchildren or a friend's child or anybody's going to be born in even 10 years with certainty. But Mike is telling somebody's going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem 700 plus years out. Then the prophet Zechariah prophesying 500 plus years out said that he would have a triumphal entry on a donkey colt. And that happened on Palm Sunday. And then he said that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and later that same money would be used to buy a potter's field. And we know that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and then out of guilt, threw that money back in the temple, and the priest said, we don't want it, and they went out and bought a potter's field, a cemetery for foreigners. Two other things to keep in mind. We are warned two times in Deuteronomy and one time in in Revelation not to add to or take away from this book. In fact, in the book of Revelation, John makes it really clear not to add to or take away from the prophecy because there would be severe consequences. And then something else to keep in mind is that God is time. He sees over all time. He doesn't look like we do, like we're looking over a wall just wondering what's going to happen. God has sees from back to the beginning of time and on out through all of eternity. And so he sees 2019 the same way he saw the year 19 AD or the year 2019 BC. 
It is through this book and the study of it that we learn to know the voice of God. It is how we learn to know what the imposter will do to lead us away. So with that said, let's talk about the context where Jesus is operating today. He's been at the Feast of the Festivals, and it's kind of ironic. In chapters 7, 8, and 9, he's taken all this grief while he's at this festival, and it's the Harvest Festival. It occurs in late September, early October. It is the Harvest Festival where they will celebrate three things. One of those is the harvest that has just been brought in. And in a shameless plug, this year's Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of the Tabernacles will occur when we're at the CCHO men's mission trip, right next to a farm, all right? So whatever that, that, that's just something to to throw in there. And so also, they would move out of their houses for that eight-day festival, and they would move into these little huts made of leaves and branches. And it was during that time that they would remember what God did for them when they were wandering in the 40 years of wilderness. And they would remember their dependency on Him. But the third thing is, they would celebrate the coming of the Messiah. You know, the one that they're giving all this grief to. So that is kind of ironic. At the end of today's passage, we'll see that Jesus, three months later, around December 25th, He's at another festival the Feast of Dedications. How many of you have ever talked to your friends about the Feast of Dedication? How many of you have used the word Hanukkah before? Come on. Okay, Jesus was at Hanukkah. Okay, it's just like their July 4th celebration. It wasn't a commanded festival. So he is steeped in all of this Jewish history. And that's where we pick up today. So we're in John 10, looking at verses 1 through 6. Jesus is responding to the Pharisees, either a question or comment. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of them out of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Now, I've got a couple pictures up here of what the sheep pens look like. And we have basically two sheep pens we're talking about this morning. The first one would be more like the in-town sheep pen. And it would be boulders stacked five, six feet tall with a very, very narrow opening. And at the end of the day, the shepherds would bring their flocks in and they would run the sheep through this very very narrow opening. And then they would go about, maybe go get something to eat. They would sleep. And the gatekeeper would watch their sheep during the night. And then there's a second type of pen that we see that would be more like out in the country. And again, it could look like this, but it could also be a canyon where they have also put a wall with a very narrow entry and the sheep go in and out of that narrow gate entry. Or it could also be a cave 
where they have erected the wall with a very narrow entry point. So let's pick up in 1 and 2. Very truly I tell you this, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way as a thief and a robber, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. What Jesus is saying, the only legitimate entrance is through the gate. Any entrance other than by the narrow gate is an illegitimate entrance. If somebody is coming into your house in some other way than the door, more than likely they're a thief or a robber or one of your kids who forgot their key. But that's the gist of what he's saying. And then verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. So now what we're seeing here, this is the morning the shepherds are showing up and the gatekeepers are recognizing them as legitimate shepherds. They've stopped over at the Jerusalem Speedway and got their Red Bull or McDonald's and got their coffee and they got their staff. And now they're standing there and the gatekeeper opens up and they start to call their sheep out by name. And this is something we have to recognize. We are the sheep and Jesus is the shepherd and He knows our names. Throughout this whole passage we're studying today, there is a heavy overtone of wanting a close, close relationship with us. He knows our legal names. He knows our nicknames. And those who will spend eternity with Him in heaven have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Then we know that we can know Jesus' voice. It's discernible. We can tell what it is, but we do need to be students of God's Word so that we can hear Him in noisy times. And then we also see where the shepherd leads out. In the Middle East, they don't drive their sheep. They lead by just calling them and they follow. And the one thing about Jesus is that He will always lead you to the right place. The imposter will say, hey, come over here. Get involved in this. This is going to be really good for you. But we have to know His voice And Jesus will be, no, come over here. It may not look as good in the beginning, but in the end, it'll be a blessing. And we know Jesus' voice, and we run from Satan's voice. Stranger danger. And Jesus always leads out ahead of us and never asks us to do anything that He didn't already do Himself. He tells us that we are to forgive others but He forgave all of us and took the punishment for our sins. When He was on the cross, He asked forgiveness for those at the foot of the cross who were crucifying Him. He asked us to love those that are hungry and thirsty and cold and in prison, and we know that Jesus did that. He led on out ahead of us. He asked us to sacrifice and to suffer at times in our faith. But He always leads out first and shows us the example. Verse 4 and 5, when He had brought out all His own, He goes on ahead of them and His sheep follow Him because they know His voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from Him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Again, Jesus calls us to follow, but once again, we need to hear His voice. 
The Bible is God's voice to us. We need to inhale it. We need to have everything that is just to, to just be passionate about learning about it so that we know everything about our Heavenly Father, everything about Jesus, everything we're called to do to live a Christian life. We also need to be deep in it again so we know the imposter's voice. Peter says that a devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and he calls us to be alert and sober so we don't fall for his lies. Now in verse 6, this looks like a contradiction to what I just said. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. But here's the thing. He's just using an allegory, which is a story that needs interpretation, and he's going to go ahead and interpret it. But he tells him this so that um, he can explain what he means. So we're going to come to the first of the two I am's today, but I just want to jump back. There are seven I am statements, and it's where Jesus gives us his divine identity. And these all go back to Exodus 3, 13 and 14, when Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. See, God doesn't have to say anything else other than I am. He is everything. And so this is where Jesus draws off of this because he is God on earth. We know he's already said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And we get to the third statement now today. I am the gate. Pick up verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Remember earlier I said the only legitimate entrance is through the gate. Any other entrance into the sheep pen into, to get the sheep is an illegitimate entrance. And Jesus is saying, He is the gate. Whoever enters through Me will be saved. Future tense. Note the future tense because He has not been crucified yet, buried and risen. So what is Jesus saying here? This can't be missed. It's through me you come to God, and I am God on earth. But what's the culture say? Many ways. All roads lead to God. And in our hypersensitive, politically correct culture, this is an explosive claim. For some of you, you may have just tuned me out. Figuratively, you have turned your back on me and are facing towards the back of the auditorium. Stick with me, though, because it's going to get really good. For some of you, you may leave here and be tempted to sell, tell somebody, the preacher said today that Jesus is the only way. He's so close-minded. But keep in mind, I didn't say it. Jesus did. So don't shoot the messenger. The most influential, most well-known, most sung-about figure in history 
said this. The one whom the prophets prophesied about in detail 500 years plus before he was born said this. The one whose purpose is detailed in the Bible, the most printed book of all time. The Bible, they think, estimated about 600 billion copies. The popular series Harry Potter has about half a billion copies in print. And the thing is, the Bible is not a book that you have to, to buy for because you're com- under compulsion. People buy it to find out what God is telling them. The Creator, Jesus, said this. Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Him and for Him. We're going to talk about the sixth I am statement, but is very closely related and drills home what Jesus is saying today in John 14, 6. He reiterates this claim with even greater force. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we'll unpack that in a few weeks. Peter, speaking before the Sanhedrin, in Acts 4, 12 says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We need to be sensitive to the questions that come up. And I've had these same questions myself. What about the people that have never heard about Jesus? Or my uncle did this, or my mom did this. But that is beyond the scope of this sermon. The main thing is that each of us must land on what we believe. What Christians can't do is be wishy-washy. As Christ followers, we follow Jesus, and this is what Jesus said. We can't go, but it's 2019. Remember what I said about time? Holy Spirit and God the Father and Jesus are not standing up in heaven going, boy, we didn't see this coming. Holy Spirit, how come you didn't write that differently? Well, you didn't tell me to write it that way. I mean, they're not having that conversation. We could tell Jesus, Jesus, you're a good guy. But at this point in time, you're simply wrong. Peter did that once. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And and Peter gives a great answer, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He says, way to go, Peter. What an awesome answer. And then Jesus goes on to explain that he's got to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed. And then on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And Peter, being Peter, always doing something goofy, it says... Peter rebuked Jesus. He says, Jesus, you're wrong. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Peter's problem is he is thinking from a human perspective, a very small human perspective, and Jesus is thinking about things from a heavenly perspective. He's thinking his thoughts that referring to Peter, not Jesus' thoughts. 
And when we're in the mode of, well, Jesus, you're just wrong, we're thinking our small human thoughts instead of God's heavenly thoughts. Ultimately, we have to realize that Jesus is the gate because that was His purpose in coming. To save the world and salvation was for everyone who desires it. And now's the good part. What at first seems like an exclusive claim is one matched with unbridled, absolute inclusivity. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, everyone who believes in Him, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, to save everyone through Him. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't miss this point. The one defining element of Christianity that separates it from all other religions is this. It is forgiveness and reconciliation based upon what Jesus did for us, what somebody else did for us, and not us working our way to heaven. We can be certain on this earth that we will spend eternity with Jesus. We will not wait and try to work our way to heaven and find out when we get there whether we are in or out. Christian salvation is not based on nationality, previous religious heritage, genetics, nor the demand of political leaders. Salvation is free for everyone. And this is something to be thankful for and shared with anyone who will listen. Everyone is invited. No son is too great. There is no one in this room that has done anything too bad that Jesus cannot forgive you because every sin we've ever committed from the very first sin that was committed to the very last one that will be committed was punished on the cross. We just have to go through the gate. Picking up in verses 9 and 10, they will come in and go out and find pasture. The sheep are fine in the pen at night, but in the morning they wake up hungry and they want water and grass and they want to go out. And we know that when we leave here, it's so easy to be a Christian in here. We're with our friends. Very little, if any, temptation. But when we go out there, the world's going to hit us. But Jesus, the shepherd, says that He will give us passage. We'll be able to go in and go out with the power of the Holy Spirit if we've accepted Jesus. We've got this book to tell us how to live our life, how to know the imposter's voice, and to run from it. And He will sustain us. He will give us life to the full. Full here in the Greek is parasos. It means exceedingly abundant, supplying more than ever needed. And it might be easy to jump to physical and monetary blessings, the health and wealth gospel. But that would be a slap in the face, a slap in the face to our brothers and sisters around the globe who experience extreme hardship every day, extreme poverty, and extreme persecution. That's not what Jesus is talking about. 
He's talking about eternal life. When you look at the whole book of John, this is clear. He's going to give us abundant life. It's going to last forever for eternity. So now we get to the next I am statement, and it's, it's much sweeter. It's like ice cream. And the thing is, it's, it's easier to because it's almost like, well, it's all about us. So it's kind of good that way. Uh, verse 11 through 13, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now when we read this, we might look and go, yeah, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's good. But in the Greek, the word is kalos, and what it means is perfect beauty, excellent, no blame. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the perfect model shepherd. And then he contrasts himself with the hired gun. The hired gun runs away, but the model shepherd dies for his sheep. And we know at the time, Jesus had not yet died, but would eventually be killed for all of his sheep's sins, as well as everybody, whether they come into the pen or not. And then he would be buried and rise again. He will lay down his life for his sheep because he loves us. Verse 14 through 18, I am the good shepherd. I know, Focus on the word know here and how many times it's used. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own account. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And I just want to look at verses 14 through 16 here. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. This is a DTR moment between Jesus and the sheep. He is saying, I want to know you just like the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The word for know in Greek here is gnosko, and it infers an intimate relationship built on experiences. For many people, they struggle with getting close to God. They go, oh, God doesn't really want to be that close to me. But Jesus is saying, no, I want to know my sheep, and I want my sheep to know me. And I want it to be the relationship, like the relationship between my father and me as his son. That's how intimate I want to know you. He desires the closeness of a loving parent-child relationship, that of childhood friends who over the decades have shared secrets and life experiences and gone through hardships together. It is the intimate emotional bond between a godly husband and wife. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus wants with us, His sheep. Now I just want to make a note if you're a dad in here. How children grow up to see God is often how they see their own dads. 
if their dad is a kind and gentle and gracious father, then God will appear to be kind and gracious. If their dad is passive or very distant, God will appear to them to be disinterested or a relationship will be unattainable. If a dad is hot-tempered and vindictive, then God will come across as vindictive and bad-tempered. And we see here, this is not the image that God wants us to have of Him and Jesus. And for dads, yeah, your son or daughter may end up someday reading this and studying in, be able to flush what we teach them through our example, but we don't want to do that. We want to set the example for them so that they see God, the Father, through us. Verse 16 simply refers to this when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Jesus is talking to the Jews here, and then he is crucified, he dies, he's buried, and then he rises again, and then the church begins and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are brought in for salvation. And what Jesus is saying is, I've got two flocks, the Jews and the Gentiles, and I will eventually bring them all together, one flock, one shepherd. We'll close with verse 19 through 21. The Jews who heard these words were again divided, Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember, Steve talked about Jesus taking grief for healing a blind man on the Sabbath. And we look at what the Jews were going through 2,000 years ago. They were having to decide, just like we do today, are you in or are you out for Jesus? But really, in that culture, it was way harder than it is now. In the Jewish culture, if you went towards Jesus, you could very quickly be disowned by your family. Today, just like back then, if we say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus... We can count on people persecuting us, and they may even say, you're crazy. You're crazy because you follow Jesus, and we just have to accept that as part of what happens as a Christian. But the bigger issue is this. Are you in the sheep pen? Are you His sheep? And Jesus has made it very clear that He wants everyone to come to Him. That they can go through that little opening Him, And they can have salvation. All your sins can be washed away. And your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. And when you leave this earth, you will go on to be in heaven. So the question is, as the praise team sings the invitation hymn this morning, is have you done that? Are you one of His sheep? Have you gone through the gate? And if not, what's holding you? What's keeping you in that seat every week? If you believe that Jesus is who He is, if you confess Jesus with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that He is who He is and you meet Him in baptism and and the Scriptures tell us that your sins will be washed away and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can walk away from here today 
one of his sheep. And is there anything better than that? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you right now, and um, we are so thankful for your son, for the fact that he was willing to go up onto that cross, just thinking about our own sins individually. You poured out your wrath on him so we did not have to have that punishment. And then you said, if we come to Jesus, we come to you through Jesus, that we will have the best shepherd in the whole world. We just thank you for that. For some of us, we need to recommit to make sure that we are really fully invested in you, fully invested in Jesus as our shepherd fully invested in that we find out every day what your word says to us about your voice and about the voice of the imposter so we can tell the difference and move to what Jesus always calls us to, which is the good stuff. And for those who may be sitting in here week after week after week and just will not come forward because Satan's got their hand on their shoulder, I would pray that this morning is the day when they step out and they come forward and they give their life to you. They will go through you as the gate, and they will become one of your sheep for eternity. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon series by Discover Christian Church. Find more at discovercc.org.